Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Uh, First of all, my name is Brendan. I'm a sexaholic. And um, maybe we just slow it down and we start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And um, that's it. There's my talk. No, sir, emotional surrender. There's, there's, there's a speaker. There's a speaker that I'm going to, to mention on a couple of occasions today. And not because of the religious nature of the person, but because he's... I've been, I've been on this quest to find emotional sobriety because basically what I've been looking for is freedom. Freedom from my total and absolute obsession with the need to have a woman almost all the time, telling me how good I can feel about myself. And, you know, ob- obsessed, obsessed to the state where I, I lived on just waiting for a single word, just for a single word. And sex actually became my way of getting approval. You know, I, um, I early on realized I wasn't going to get approval in my family because of my, my academic record. Uh, and I, I don't like to blame my attention deficit on that, but but, but sort of, you know, it didn't help. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I was constantly being told, why can't you be like this person? Why can't you be like the other person? Why can't you just be not like you? And um, at some stage when I was about 12, my father, who's a, who's a mathematician, I was I was showing him some of my homework, reluctantly showing it to him. And he, um, he said to me, well, he actually got angry that I had made a mistake with a word. I mean, and I'm standing at the other end of the table. And I'm going, well, what's wrong with this fellow? Like, you know, we're talking about a word here. You know, it's not even a, it's, it's not even a number, you know, like sort of get over it. You know, tell me what it is. What's, what's the big deal? But what I thought he was telling me, I thought he was telling me I was stupid. And I took that away. And the white book tells us that at some stage in our lives, you know, we have this rupture with parents or whatever, and we split apart. And that was the rupture that I had with my father. Um, And that was to go on for, you know, well over 40 years uh, in terms of my being able to trust him. And and my fear of being called stupid. So I warn you, (laughs) if you meet me at a convention and I do something really off the wall, call me anything, but don't call me stupid. No, 
it just it would go into me. It would it would, it would go into me, and it was sort of it, it was getting big. But what I did was I, I backed away, and I suppose at some stage around there, I had, I had started masturbation, and I had a room to myself down at the you know, at the end of the house, and that's where I went. Uh, and I went away, and I didn't realize that I was separating from them. But all I knew was that I was going to a place where I felt comfortable, and where I wouldn't have to put up with uh, my father. What I saw as his bad humor, um, and he thought he didn't have to put up with me and my lack of dedication to study. I mean, he'd come through; he'd come from a, but they weren't well off, and he had to get scholarships all the way up through school and through university. So he was dedicated to working. I was dedicated to playing football and having a good time. Um, and we just didn't sort of seem to, to match across the way. So I ended up on a, on a, on a crash collision course with my father. And then, of course, they sent me to school. And, you know, from the age of five, I was getting into trouble for running after girls, which I just, we were just playing. We didn't, you know, there was no, there was no sexual involvement at all. It was just, it was just, we were just kids. But, you know, the nuns said you can't run after them. And so, so they hit us with sticks. And, um, you know, they did a lot of hitting in Irish schools. You know, they, 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 you know, once I got into primary school, you know, I was always getting into trouble and, you, and you'd go and they'd make you put your hand out and receive, you know, hits from a leather belt. You're six or seven years old. You've got some fellow dressed in a sort of a black dress hitting you with a leather belt. It's not conducive to feeling good about yourself, especially when you, like me, I kept pulling my hand away. I kept pulling my hand away. I didn't, I didn't want to take it. I didn't want to take it. You know, I wouldn't take the punishment, as I say. And that stuck with me as well for, for a long, long time. I felt that I was a coward. So I was a coward. I wasn't meeting my parents' um, standards. I got kicked out of the first school when I was 11, and that was the Jesuits. And as I always like to say, you know, the Jesuits were like sort of, you know, the Catholic army, you know, but they, they, they had enough of me at 11. And, I, you know, I, I, I proceeded on with that. It was just... In, in, in life, in what people were expecting of me, I just wasn't meeting up to the standards that they were looking for. And I was just kind of at war with the whole, the whole system and the world and whatever, you know, um, you know, rebel without a cause. There was no cause. There was just, there was just, I became ornery about it and I became awkward. And, uh, and I got into, you know, and, and, and then I got kicked out of another three schools after that. And, but, by about 14, 15, I got kicked out of the school at 15, at a boarding school for drinking. And my parents were in the States, and I was sent over to the States. And I had the summer before, I had had my first drink of alcohol at 14. And I was on a summer camp with the local defense force. It was just sort of a, a branch of the army. And you're supposed to be 17 when you get in. Well, I was 14, and I went in there, and they gave me guns, and they taught me how to fire guns and mortars and whatever. And and they had a two-week summer camp, which I went on. And the second week, I started to have a drink. And, you know, the third night I was drinking, I was out with the sergeant's daughter, like, till 6 o'clock in the morning. And I knew I was going to be doing a lot of drinking. And I was going to be doing a lot of looking to be with sergeant's daughters, anybody's daughter. And uh, I was up and running. I didn't actually get to have sex with a woman until I was 17, uh, by which stage I'd been waiting for a long time. And, uh, and I was pretty desperate. And it kind of showed in my, my, my early performance. And this, this girl, you know, then stood at the window looking out, talking about her boyfriend who'd left for the States and sort of saying, like, was that it? You know, and, and I swore that that would never happen again. So now I've got, you know, the thing about my past with a father that I don't fit in with anybody else. I've got this girl has made me feel humiliated. 
um, when I first tried to have sex with, with, with her. And so from then on, you know, I was just, I was obsessed by the sex and I was obsessed with making sure that I would never be humiliated again. And so I don't think I was ever really present. I was, I, I just, I, I went after sex morning, noon and night. And, um, and I just totally, totally obsessed by it. And, you know, it's like alcohol, you know, and you, I've heard people, in, I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous as well, and I've heard people saying, you know, they didn't enjoy the alcohol and they didn't have a good time, you know, so, you know, they were, you know, they got sick the first night. I didn't, I didn't, you know, and I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my addictions. I enjoyed my addictions for years. I enjoyed them, I sort of things, but I got, it got more and more chaotic and it got to the stage where I was having difficulties with relationships. I got married along the way. <clears throat> my relation, I, you know, I, 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 I was married a very short period of time when I didn't come home one night. I, my mother-in-law, my wife, my brother's girlfriend and my cousin were all waiting for me. And um, a girl that I had gone out with before I got married told me that she had been, but one night I'd gone out and I was drunk and she went home in a taxi and she was, uh, she was, she was, she was attacked by the taxi driver and raped. And, uh, and so she told me that and asked me to meet her. And so I met her in a pub and I'm talking to her in the pub and I had one drink and I said, well, I've got to go. And then she said, well, that's not like a Brendan I know. And then it's where the pride comes in. So I stay for a second drink. And I don't remember anything after that. And I don't even remember if anything happened, but I didn't make it home to the following day, by which stage my mother-in-law was going off the wall completely. My wife was really, she was, my wife had actually gone out dancing, you know, with, with, with my brother's girlfriend who said like, look, oh, he'd be back by the morning, but I didn't make it back till the early morning. And so uh, she, she, she left me and I got into AA and I said, you know, I, I thought I'd get sober there. Um, and my wife was from Peru. I was in England at the time. And uh, she came back to, to England. And I said, well, about that stage, I had lost my job, uh, restless, irritable and discontent. You know, this is what happens when you stop taking the, the, the drug. And, uh, I had a bit of money and I wanted to travel around the world. And she said she didn't want a, an adventure. Like we, we, we should go to Peru. So I went to Peru where there was a war on. And, uh, my wife got pregnant fairly soon afterwards and was <laughs> confined to bed. And I was now, I wouldn't drink alcohol, but now I was on a mixture of lust and cocaine and acting out with myself. And, and that was, a lot of times that was much more pleasurable. And I was able to sort of, I didn't have to deal with my wife and her humors and my humors and the whole thing. The thing. And uh, I just, I just got lost in that and stayed at that for about three years until I, I went abroad one time and, and, and I picked up a drink again. And then it got really chaotic and my wife left me um, very soon after that. By which stage I was homicidal because I wanted to leave my wife, but I thought she won't let me have, we had a daughter by that stage. I thought she won't let me have the daughter. So I'm going to have to do away with my wife. And, uh, you know, so let's say my thinking was really gone off the wall altogether, you know, and she left me and I, you know, and then she let me have my daughter every single weekend. <laughs> it was great. I had my daughter every single weekend. And uh, my daughter used to stay awake. She was only two and a half, but she would stay awake every night on the weekends until whatever woman might be in the house was gone. So, you know, she was like sort of my, my, my she was, she was my SA at the time over the weekend. You know, I wasn't having any, I wasn't having any relations and I just dedicated myself to my daughter. But during the week I, 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 I was, I was going crazy. And I had never gone to prostitutes. I remember being in Thailand when I was in my 20s and people were going to prostitutes and I was saying, you know, I would never do this. Now I was in Peru 
And now I started, you know, at, at, at this stage, my wife had left me and was ever, and I'd gone through every sort of thing. I didn't want anybody to love me anymore. I didn't want anybody to feel guilty. I didn't want to see in their eyes that I'd let them down because I was really wanted to be faithful. And I really wanted things to work out. And I had a couple of five, you know, long-term relationships, five years with, with the girl before and then five years with my husband. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't deal with the fact if they got upset with me, I'd get emotionally disturbed or whatever. And I had to have something to calm me down. And the only thing that really calmed me down was the sex. You know, my friends were happy to get alcohol and drugs and whatever and sort of pass out. Not me. If I didn't have sex, you know, that it was a wasted night. And there was times it was like sort of, you know, the, the, the demand for sex, you know, would cross any, any boundaries because it was just absolutely necessary. You know, it was absolutely necessary to have it. And, uh, you know, so, so my wife left me and I was going crazy these things and I got mixed up, you know, and, 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 I, and I went to, I started going to the brothels and I got mixed up with a, with, 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 with a girl there in a, you know, sort of a, I, I, I'd call it a, that film Fatal Attraction, you know, and we were both fatally attracted and, and it was chaotic. And, and she had barmen and different bars to inform her if I was around and then I'd come out and she'd be traveling around in a, in a, in a taxi or, or, you know, I would be with somebody else and in, in a brothel and she would come and kicking on the door. I mean, there was, it was, it was getting crazy. And, and I was going, I, I was going nuts in that situation and I met this beautiful woman and I, I remember seeing her and thinking she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And my, and my thought was leave her alone. You're an alcoholic. You're a drug addict. You can't do this person any good. Just leave them alone. Well, I met them again at a at a conference a little while later on. And they were there at this, this this conference, which was up in the in the mountains. And by this stage, I was I was working with Peru. I was working with with uh, different groups in the environment and indigenous peoples, whatever. And and this 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 girl was there, and and, and they were they were having various uh, ceremonies with with with. Uh, medicinal plants etc and i got to talk to her and the following day we met in the airport and she came back and it was it was my birthday and she came to that or it was her birthday coming up and i went to that and but i was still determined that i wouldn't going to go out with her i wasn't going to have a relationship with her because i would destroy it and uh, you know um and on the christmas eve she met up with me and and i suppose we, we 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 had a kiss and that started it all and and a few days later we were together completely the thing about it was, is I, I, I was with a friend of mine. I was saying, like, I really don't want to mess this up. And he said, don't. And I thought, like, well, you know, I'm sorry, you don't understand. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I mess everything up. I didn't say I was a sexaholic as well. You know, I thought that my problem was the alcohol and the drugs. And that because of the alcohol and the drugs, I couldn't avoid acting out. That if I didn't have those, I might be able to be, um, I might be able to be faithful. So anyway, about a year later, uh, she used to go and work in the jungle and, and, and she'd go away for like 20 days at a time. And, and I would swear that I wouldn't go near anybody else. But as soon as I went out and I had a drink, I would ring this other, this, 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 this other woman and she would come over. And, you know, and it got to the stage at the end that she, she came over and, and I got her to bring other people as well. And, you know, a bag of cocaine and alcohol and whatever. And you know, the following day, I really would have been happy to carry on, but I no more money and those sort of things. And I was just, I was kind of done as well. And I got rid everybody away. And then, and then, you know, this, this, this woman came back and, you know, uh, 
And I was, I was, I was going insane. I was going, I was going insane. I really thought I was going to lose it. You know, I mean, I, I was paranoid, and I was, I was, I was hearing the the person who looked after the cars in the car park across the way. I could hear his walkie-talkie, and I was thinking, you know, the army or the police are going to come smashing in the door. And you know, I'm getting phone calls, people screaming at me down the line, and I'm just getting just, just totally paranoid. And I, I had to tell her, I had to tell her that this is, this is the chaos. And, and she stormed out and then she came back again. And then she was more upset with me because I hadn't got rid of all the stuff um, that, that had been there. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a space we shared, you know, and, and um, but she helped me to, to find the number for AA. And I went to AA and I got to AA and I, <clears throat> you know, I didn't have to wonder, was I an alcoholic and did I, you know, was my life unmanageable? It was obvious. Um, and, you know, was there a, a higher power? I just hope so. You know, and then, you know, could I make a decision to turn my will in my life over the higher power? How would I know? You know, I'm such a good liar. I wouldn't have trusted myself. So I just went on and I did step four. I got into step four as quickly as I could. And I think that was the saving of me. And, you know, and it took me through and whatever. And and later on, years later on, I realized that the way I knew that I had taken step three is because I did step four and I did the rest of them. <laughs> and I was prepared to just go on and carry on this. And and and, and I did that for, for, you know, I got about eight years sobriety in AA. But about a year after I got into AA, I was in Hawaii and there was a person there who was same-sex oriented. And, you know, we both had a, a similar name. And I, I was chatting to him one time and he was telling me about this sex program that, he, that he'd gone to. We were, you know, we were talking about the, the problems of lust. And he told me he used to go to this program, which was SLAA. And so I went with him to it. And, and I met some interesting people there. And, you know, there was one guy with really big studs in his ears before these things were really popular. And, I, you know, I was wondering what people like that were there. They were young. And there was a young doctor there who was, like, very good-looking, whatever. And he was there. And I, I was saying to this guy with the big studs, you know, earrings in his ears, what are you doing here? And he said, I can't deal with the fact that I can't stay faithful to my girlfriend for even a year and i'm thinking a year you know i mean i would dream of being able to be faithful for a year and it wasn't that i was acting out with people all the time but my head was racing the whole time my head was racing the whole time it was saying go into this club or go to that club or do this thing and I, luckily i didn't have much money and i had to send money back from my kid my daughter and, and various things and it, and it just about kept me on the thing but my head was racing the whole time and AA was keeping me sober and i I started to get this thing, okay, that I had to get sober. And I started running in the mornings. I was going to meetings at 7.30 in the morning. And I, you know, I, I, I was trying to, I was starting getting this into my head that I had a problem with, with sex. And then I brought my daughter and, um, and, and this, 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 this other woman over to, to, to Hawaii. And I was, I, you know, I, I was getting up early, early in the morning and I was running and then I was going to meetings and then I was going to work and then I was coming home and then I was telling my daughter stories and I was doing food and then telling my daughter stories. And sometimes I'd fall asleep on the bed beside my daughter when I was telling her a story. And my girlfriend was getting really, really annoyed with this. And, you know, she started thinking that I didn't want to be with her. And I'm explaining to her that I'm, you know, that I've got a problem with, with lust and that I need to get sober and that we shouldn't be having relations. And then she's getting annoyed and thinking I'm be having a relationship and whatever things, you know didn't go too smoothly and you know as these things do it went on for a number of years but we ended up almost splitting up and then deciding we wanted to be together and we had a child together two weeks after the child was born we're split up 
and and I think I'm going nuts. And by this stage now, I'm working in the in uh, out in out in Japan. She's living in Peru, and I've got a job where I'm I'm, I'm spending three or four months of the year in Peru, three or four months of the year in Japan, and the rest of the time I'm traveling around. And never am I in the same place for more than two months maximum at any stage. So I'm flying around all the place. I'm really not paying much attention. I'm trying to do the job. I'm trying to make this relationship work, but it's just just so, so difficult. It was so difficult. And, And I thought, you know, I got into SA in Japan, and I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work this program really well. I know how it works. I'm going to do a really good fourth step. I'm going to identify all my defects. And then I'm going to get my higher power to take them away. Now, then I'm going to be defect free. I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to go back to her. She's going to be really pleased with me. Of course, she's going to come back to me because she loves me. And she's always telling me she loves me. She just can't support me. I'm going to go back, this defect free person. I'm going to be back with her. We're going to be having great sex. And it'll just be the two of us. We'll be at this thing. I'll be faithful to her. No problems. That was 14 years ago. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I did this massive forward step. You know, there was three books. There was a book for resentments. There was a book for fears. And there was a book for uh, sex. And I had them. There were three. And I had them bound. Well, they were actually in, in, in ring folders. And I put the three of them together. I put them in a manila envelope, covered it with ducting tape. And left it at a hotel where my sponsor, who was coming in from abroad, he would come every two months. He was going to come, and I wanted him to have a chance to have a look at them before I came back from a trip I was on, and then we'd do it. But when I came back, he sort of said to me, he says, Brendan, like, you know, I'm only here for three days, and I'm here to work. You know, how are we going to get through all this? Huh? And, and, and he pointed out how obsessive it was. And I had this image, you see, of like somebody picking clams. You know, clams, you, if you, if you, if you, I have never dug for clams, but I've seen people doing it. You have to go quick. You've got to get in quick or the clam will be gone and it's further down the sand. So you've got to get in quick. And I had this vision of digging out the clam and then you've got this mound of sand where you went in and then you put the clam in the bucket and the sand is there and the sea will come in and it'll wash all the sand down. It'll all be smooth and it'll all be gone. That's the image I had. Yeah? It's not exactly the way it worked. Yeah? And it's not exactly the way the program worked. But I was going to use the program for my ends. Well, it kicked my butt. It just didn't happen that way. And I was suffering. And, you know, as my son was getting to be one year old and I'd be in Japan and I'd be ringing her up and I'd be saying, I'd be just sitting on the end of the phone and just be waiting for one word, just just one word to tell me that she was happy with our son. Not that she was happy with me, not that she was content with me, not that she ever wanted to be, but just that she was happy about anything. And she knew what I was looking for because I could take that just one word and I could create a world out of it. I could take that and it'd be like sort of I can put it in and it's like mainlining. You know, I've got it into my system now and everything's okay. It's my drug. Everything's okay. If she's okay, there's a hope that it's all going to be okay. The slightest bit of hope and I'm there. But I'm dependent on that. And she was smart enough to know what I was looking for and she wouldn't give it to me. She wouldn't give me that word. She wouldn't say that she was happy about anything. She was nothing at all. And I was suffering this sort of thing. And it was, I, I used to say it was like Harry Kiri every time I was on the phone, you know, which was appropriate being in Japan. That went on for, that went on, that went on for a long time. And when my son was about four or five years old, first, my parents, it was my parents' uh, 
50th wedding anniversary and and you know sylvia was just on the other channel and she was saying they were 61 years married and my parents were just 62 i think they were 62 years married just 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 this this a few months ago and so i came back i was going to come back from peru and i wanted to bring my daughter and my son but my my, my wife wouldn't let my son travel with me without she wanted her aunt to go and i said i'm not bringing your aunt but i said i'll bring you and maybe we'll give it a try and we went back and we and we gave it this try you know and it was it was trying in the extreme. It was like I was walking on, 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 on eggs the whole time and nothing seemed to be able to, I didn't seem to be able to do anything just to make her feel relaxed. And of course she didn't feel relaxed. She was, she was in this situation with somebody who she told me later that she had, she felt that she had to hate me because she couldn't afford to love me because she couldn't rely on me. And, and, and we stayed together for that period of time. And after some time we were back in Peru and we, we were together and we were, we, 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 were, we were being intimate and my body was having sex with her. And I was literally watching my body having sex with her, but my head was not attached. It, was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't there at all. It was completely separate. My, my head had nothing to do with the physical sensation. So I, I couldn't actually get any kind of pleasure of the physical situation because it, it just wasn't attached. And I felt like my heart had left the building altogether. It just wasn't there. You know? And so I thought this was the loneliest, loneliest place that you could ever get to. <clears throat> what could I do? You know, I mean, this is just, it was just so lonely because it meant being with the person that I felt love towards, that I wanted to be intimate with, that I was being intimate with, it, that I was trying to be as close with. I couldn't be intimate with them if I turned off the fantasies in my head. And by trying to turn off the fantasies, I separated myself from my sexuality because my sexuality had become just completely driven by my fantasies. And it was a really, really lonely place because what it said to me was that there was no way I could ever get to what I was looking for, which was union with somebody else. It was impossible. I was never going to get that union because I didn't want these, you know, fly-by-night sort of relationships. I wanted somebody, my grandfather and grandmother, they lived to a great old age. My grandmother was, I think, was 97 or 98 when she died, and my grandfather was about 92, and they were together for a long time, and my parents have been together for a long time, and, you know, the kind of the rough edges have been rubbed off, and they're the best of friends, you know. I mean, sure, they have, like, conflicts from now and again, but my father wakes up in the morning thinking about her, and she was recently in hospital, and she had tubes coming out of her nose and needles up in her arms and all this sort of thing, whatever, and I came in, and she said, Oh, she said, poor Sean, which is my father. Poor Sean, he was looking very tired. <laughs> and, you know, she's just thinking about him and he's thinking about her. I think, isn't that lovely? Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that what you're looking for? Because that's really what I was looking for. I was looking for that sort of thing. But I was looking for in relationships which were developed and, and, and generated around sex and in which sex was supposed to be the mechanism through which I was going to feel that union because it was the only way I could feel union. And so I began a distortion of how to be in relation with somebody else because I just didn't know. I, I had to sexualize it. I had to sexualize it to know if it was real. I found myself in a situation at times standing with a man that this friendship is showing, and I have this feeling that I should kiss this man as I'm leaving with just so that they realize that there is real friendship here. You know, that it's just, just, it's just, just this physical feeling that I should, and I'm going, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't allow this friendship to go on. You better not do it. But it's just, it's just like a physical feeling that comes up because it's the only way I can express. It's the only sort of thing I sort of get, you know. So anyway, she said she, she, she didn't want to be with me. She wasn't being with me because she thought I wasn't paying enough attention to her son. And that was 10, 10, 10 something years ago, yeah. 
and or, or more, no more, it was more, what am I talking about? It would be about 12, 12 years ago. And I was in Japan. I was, I was, I was you know, trying to be, I, I'd been going around Japan for three years looking at the ground because I didn't want to act out. And then, you know, really going off my head when I go to Peru, which is what you really, really get to me. But, and I'd go down to, when I got to Peru, I'd go down to the local AA group and I'd get like sort of, you know, six or seven people together or I'd go to some of the meeting and I would run workshops on the fourth step for like the weeks that I was there. And I'd do three hour workshops on a Friday night just to sort of, you know, to, you know, once it says like when the imperious urge is there, you know, work harder, you know, well, that was me. I mean, I had to find some way to deal with that sort of thing. But I was there then and, and the relationship wasn't working and I, I started, you know, probing around the idea of maybe a relationship. And I, but I was, I was trying to go to SA at the same time. And eventually I, I left uh, Japan and I, I went back to um, Ireland. And in Ireland, I got to go to three meetings a week and I got a sponsor and uh, I was in an earlier workshop there and somebody was saying how, you know, this, this sponsor of mine, I uh, had said that he was my sponsor from hell. And I did say that about him at the start, you know, it was, I thought I'd go nuts. I said, it's lucky he was in a different country. I mean, he was English and I was Irish and we were really clashing. But I started to follow his directions. And I started to get sobriety, proper sobriety. I'd been going at it for about two years before that, but I was constantly losing my sobriety. I started to get the sobriety. And he wasn't interested in how I felt. He was interested in whether I was following directions. And I started to do that. And I started to get this... Um, I, I can see I've just been talking for a half an hour already. Um, I started to get this, this, this freedom, uh, bit by bit. And I started to get uh, that feeling of... Um, you know, that maybe there was a chance here. And, and, and that, was, that was over 10 years ago. And, and, and I've been sober since, since, sober since then. I did lose my sobriety once more after that. I was in, I, I, I was abroad again. I was actually, I, I, I was abroad again. And it was in, I was in China. And I was there with, I met up with this woman with whom I had a, a, a platonic relationship. And she was actually, she was from another country in Europe, but living in, in Peru as well. And we had met in Peru. And so we met up in China. And we go and walk on the Great Wall of China. And we're walking the Great Wall of China with her. And she's ahead of me on stage. And I'm looking at her and saying, well, why don't you marry her? You know, I mean, my daughter said, I, my daughter thought I should. And, and her son thought I should. And they, they went to the same school. So I know that that was going to be okay. And, and I was looking at her and I was thinking, yeah, 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 you know. But like sort of, you know, there was various reasons. And I thought like, if I'm going to get married, I really, you know, the mother... Of my son, by this stage, we'd, we'd, we'd had, of course, we'd had a son, the mother of my son. I mean, you know, she's beautiful and I really want to be with her. Be with her. But then I thought, oh, man, she just drives me nuts. I mean, she's just driving me crazy. And then I thought, somebody of 24. I always liked 24. When I was 20, I went out with a girl of 24. When I was 30, I went out with a girl of 24. I said, 24. That was just... But what was going on was I was in the fantasy. Now, I wasn't in lust at that stage. I didn't feel any lust in that sort of thing. I wasn't lusting. I was into this thing about having a relationship. But what happened is I left there on my way back to Peru and I stopped off in the States at the house of some friends of mine. And by the way, all of these trips were like sort of paid for um, out of, out of this, around the work that I was doing. But it wasn't like sort of like some, some, some rich consultant. I was, I was sort of I, I was brought around the places with these various different things. And, and it was just 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 luck. But it was just my life. And, and I'm, I'm sitting down with these two people at the breakfast table and they're there and they're doing the time cross or some crossword that they were doing. And they're both sitting there and they're, they're a little bit eccentric. They're sitting there and they're, they're Japanese kimonos and, and they're having tea. <laughs> and I'm looking at them and I think, who 
where's my relationship? And where's my relationship? I've been in this thing now for a while. I've been sober for a while. I'm tired. I said, where's my relationship? And I started to get into self-pity. And I flew back into Peru. And as soon as I hit Peruvian airspace, like my head was going nuts. It's like, I know where the girls are. I know where I can do whatever. And, and I'm white knuckling. And I'm white knuckling. And to this day, I can't tell you whether it was a week, two weeks, three days. I don't know. But I, I, I felt that it was about a week or two. But I was white knuckling. And every day I'd be saying, I'd go to the club. And then I won't go to the club. And I'd go tomorrow. I'd go tonight. But then it's too late. I'll leave it till tomorrow. And one day I'm flipping through the screens. And I see a bit of porn on the TV. I go past it. I come back to it. And I touch myself and I stop immediately. And the following day, I ring my sponsor. And he said to me, he said, he would reset his sobriety days. And I thought, oh, hell, like, why didn't I go out and sort of, you know, be with a few women for a few days and then come back? You know, now I'm going to lose it. But just touch my losing five months sobriety. And then I realized it wasn't about what I'd done. It wasn't about whether I'd acted out of myself or not. It was about what was going on in my head. And it was there that I started to get sober. And I went on with that. When I was about to have four or five years sober, I had decided, you know, that I had enough now of this thing with the relationship with the, with the mother and my son. I'd been trying the thing, and I told my sponsor. And he said, no, no, carry on. And I'm saying, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know if I can do this. And he said to me, he said, well, you've got, you know, you've got, you've got a number of options here. He said, you could, um, you could marry, you know, you've got enough families, you know, you've got kids with two different women. You can, you can marry either of the mothers of your children. You could stay celibate for the rest of your life. Um, or you've got a third option, which is you could get a, another sponsor. Oh, man, like, geez, you know, that's a rock and a hard place, you know. I don't want to get another sponsor because I'm staying sober, and I really don't want to lose my sobriety because I know that if I lose my sobriety in this program, I will lose it on alcohol and, and drugs, and there is no question it will kill me, you know. I mean, I don't take a little old, you know, it won't be a little one or two drinks. It'll be right down into the bucket, and I go straight down with everything immediately, you know. So I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to lose that. And, and I'm saying, but, you know, and the, my mother and my daughter, when she's remarried, and she's happily remarried, and the mother and my son would, you know, I mean, would, the, the relationship didn't work at all. So, like, I'm in this rock and a hard place. And I, I, I thought, so I, I rang up a long-term member in, these, in the States. I said, what am I going to do? And he said, well, could you put off the decision for a year? And I thought, well, that's okay. I can do that. I can do that in my head. I mean, four years, um, you know, celibate now. I thought that was impossible, but I'd be four years celibate and I, you know, I can do it on my head. You know, I was such an easy, like, put it off for a year. But it went on and it went on. And at sort of eight, nine years, I'm saying to my sponsor, saying, I'm really done with this. And I'm saying, like, you know, when I contact her, all I get is pain. And he said to me, he said to me something that I thought was really off the wall at the time. And he said to me, she's doing her job perfectly. And I said, what do you mean? He said, she's going to teach you unconditional love. And we actually got engaged about three years ago. You know? And then I immediately got cold feet as well because she would she criticized a lot and those sort of things. I thought, I don't know if I can deal with this day in, day out for the rest of my life. You know, this constant sort of like knocking me. And of course, because I'm looking for somebody to build me up, not for somebody to knock me down. You know? And my higher powers obviously, you know, got me tweaked as well. And, but because of... There's something, you know, my sponsor had done the same himself for 20 years. You know, he's, he, he, he decided to dedicate himself to staying true to a particular relationship. And I said, well, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And I, but I realized I couldn't give it a go because what I'd been trying to do was find a way to get her to go and change. If she would just go to Al-Anon or S-Anon or if she would go to the right therapy or she would do the right sort of program, she would listen to me, <laughs> she would change. 
and everything will be hunky-dory, but that wasn't happening. And uh, so I had to give up that. And so I realized, and this is, I'm, I'm sorry it's taking me so long to get here, but I didn't know where it would start, and I don't know where it finishes, but I do know that I was to talk about emotional sobriety, and that is, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about where I came from and, and where I've got to. And so I... I started to, you know, I was, I was wondering what was I going to do? And I'd heard about Bill W. He's 20 years sober. He started going to depression and he was wondering what was wrong to him. And, and he went to see uh, his great friend who was uh, Father Ed Dowling, uh, who, a Jesuit, never mind, Jesuit, and he went to Father Ed Dowling and he said to him, Ed, like, sort of, what's wrong? You know, like, I'm, I'm, I, I can't take another bout of depression because Bill suffered terrible depression. I can't take another bout of depression. What's going wrong? You know, I'm going to the meetings. I'm taking out the, putting out the chairs. I'm taking away the ashtrays. And Father Downing said to him, you're too dependent on AA for your sense of self-worth. And Bill's got this letter. And it's, it's, it's a letter that he wrote in 1953. And he wrote it to another old timer. And he, he talks in there about what he called these absolute dependencies, that he found that he had these absolute dependencies on people and circumstances to give him his sense of prestige. And that when he didn't receive that recognition to the extent that he required for his perfectionist nature, that drove him into depression. Now, I'd read this, I'd read this letter. I was actually given a version in Spanish years before by a friend. And I read a version of it. And, and Bill talked about you know, that every time we feel uncomfortable, we will find that there is an unhealthy dependence and underneath that is an unhealthy demand. And I could see this thing about the dependence, but I didn't really couldn't get what he was talking about the demand. So at some stage in, 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 in the past, it would have been a good few years ago, I started going through, there's, there's a great um, source of, of tapes of all sorts of types, it's called XA tapes. And it was put together by a couple of young fellows from Iceland that they said were too young to do service. So the boys went away and developed this thing with thousands of speaker tapes on it. <laughs> to become a great source of everybody. And I got really in about this sort of thing and I started to read, to listen to all the AA tapes in alphabetical order. And there was like sort of, you know, 50 something pages of them. And I listened to them all in alphabetical order so I wouldn't miss the good ones. And the one that hit me most, I mean, there's a, there's a few that are in there. Listen to Alicia P. from Cocoa Beach. Listen to Kip C. if you want to find out, like, how far you can come back from hell. But this fellow is Tom B. Jr. And he's talked about emotional sobriety. And he talked about how at 26 years of sober sobriety, he started to go into this hell place. And he was trying to work out what it was. And his wife had left him. His wife of 11 years had left him. He was suffering from emphysema. He had cancer. All sorts of things were going on. And he was just, he just wanted to die. He just wanted to die. And he found Bill's letter. And he read Bill's letter. And he realized at that stage that he had an absolute dependence on other people to give him his sense of self-worth. And no matter what, no matter how much they gave him, it wouldn't be enough. So it was like, do you love me? Are you sure? Will you love me forever? How do you know? You know, incessant, incessant. It's like a little bird in a nest. that's just beep, 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 beep. You know, it doesn't matter how much food the mother brings. The bird is just there, just, you know, just consume, consume, consume. And so what he was like is, and I started to realize this is what I was like, is like, like a little puppy dog that's constantly looking to be patted on the head that you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good. Are you sure I'm doing good? Are you sure I'm doing good? It's like, would you go away? You're doing good. It's like, to get, you know, go away. 
Go away and be self-sufficient, you know. And Bill says here, this is what he says. He says, I think that many oldsters who have put our AA booze cure to severe but successful deaths. In other words, those who have done the 12 steps, you know, and they, although they've done that successfully, they still often find they lack emotional sobriety. And then he defines emotional sobriety. He says, perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility. So basically what he's saying is that emotional sobriety is maturity and balance being in humility. And um, humility in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. You know? And he says, those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate at age 17, prove to be impossible way of life when we're 47 or 57. And I realized that was me. I had this obsession. I had this need for people to give me my self-worth. How did I get it? I got it through work, which I didn't enjoy doing, but like sort of, you know, I was looking for it in work. I can look for it in SA, you know, oh, I'll be the great speaker or I'll be the sort of this thing or I'll turn up here or I'll be the man in the meetings or I'll be like whatever it may be. I can look at it in sport. I can look at it, you know, in relationships. I can look at it with the family. I can look at it in all of these different areas. And, you know, what, what it tells us in, in, in Joe and Charlie, you know, who, who do a great thing on the big book of A. They say, you know, that we're driven. We've got these three different um, uh, needs, you know, these, these three, 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 three different things. It's like the, the survival instinct, three, three necessary instincts, survival instinct, the social instinct, and the sexual instinct. But in us, these instincts have run riot. Huh? We've just, we just demand more in every single area. So this bill, um, sorry, yeah, uh, Tom Brady Jr., he started to say how he could see this in himself. And I started to see it myself. And I, you know, I was in so much pain and I've been in so much pain for years, you know. And I had to go down on my knees and pray and say to God, like, God, please take away my need for the mother of my son or any other woman to give me my sense of self-worth. And Bill said in his letter that he could see that the solution was in the St. Francis prayer in that part of the prayer where it says, God, grant that I might seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, and to love than to be loved. You know, but he couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it. Why couldn't he get it? And he says at the end that he realized that he couldn't get that until he was ready to give to other people the love that he was waiting for from God. In other words, unconditional love. The same thing that my sponsor told me that I would have to get. And I didn't know if I was up to it. But when I said that prayer, I remember I was coming back and I was walking across the fields. I'd gone to a remote place up by the river near my place in, in, in Galway in Ireland. And I was walking back across the fields and it suddenly hit me that this St. Francis prayer is not a prayer to be a saint. And so we started today. They asked me, you know, we, we started off with a prayer and we said with the St. Francis prayer at the very start of the, of, the, of the sim today. And I could see this. It's a prayer for freedom. It's a prayer for freedom. Because if I'm focused more on what I can give than what I can get, if I'm not dependent on what I get to feel good in myself, if I just give 
for fun and for free. You know, and I have sponsees. I have people come down and stay with me here sometimes. And sometimes they can be a little bit testy. <laughs> they can be a bit awkward. They can get a bit moody. And I'm saying, oh, it's my house. How dare they? And then I have to say to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you invite somebody here, if you give somebody something, if you're doing it, do it for fun and for free. Don't do it for what you might get back. Because as soon as I go in looking for what I might get back, I've lost it already. You know, I've got that expectation. So in the relationship with the mother and my son, and in looking for emotional sobriety, and I'm going to try to tie this up now in about five minutes, I first realized that I had to give up the expectation of the relationship. I was sure that if I went and I did the steps right, I would get the relationship back. And then it wasn't happening. I did all the step work and she was not coming back. So I had to give up the expectation, which they call the premeditated resentment. But I thought, well, well, at least I can hope for it. What about a year or two later, I realized, no, mate, you better give up the hope because the hope in itself is a demand. And this is what Bill was talking about. He said, we've got an unhealthy dependence. My unhealthy dependence is on my dependence on other people, in particular women, but I would take it from men, I would take it from society, whatever, to give me my sense of self-worth. I'm looking at it from outside. That's my dependence. My demand is, that you must give that to me all day, every day. In other words, to in my relationships, if I come in home and, you know, I would come in home and if the woman I was with, at whatever it the time, if she had a, a long face on and she was upset, I would immediately make it about me. She knows that I don't like that. She knows that it disturbs me. She knows that it's going to make me feel guilty. Why is she doing that to me? I'm not asking whether she's got a toothache, had a bad day at work, or having her, it's the time of the month, or anything else. It's immediately about me. And, you know, that's my demand. My demand is not only that you give me love, but you give me constantly, continuously, all day, every day, and you don't ever stop. And you don't ever dare stop smiling. And I had to be careful because I demand that my kids are smiling. Because if they're not smiling, that means that they're bored or they're upset. And it means that they're not happy with me. So I'm doing something wrong. So in other words, for me to be well, you have to change. You know, I mean, that's just that's just wearing on anybody. You know, you drive them away. And that's what this Tom Brady said. He said he drove his wife away. He loved her. He drove her away. So I decided I had to give away the hope because the hope was a demand. Because if I'm saying to God, look, I really hope like that this will happen. I'm really saying I'm not going to be happy unless it happens. So I'm telling God what to do. And if I look in the third step, it tells me that in order to hand my will and my life over to God, I've got to stop playing God. So I have to give up the hope. But a year later... Can I ask a couple of questions? Oh, sorry. Finish. finish A couple of years later, I decided, I realized I had to give up the desire. Sorry. I had to give up the desire for the relationship. You know, that that fact that I will never be complete unless I have a partner. I have to accept that God may not have it in his plan for me to ever be with somebody again. You know, as long as I'm holding out, I mean, I hear it all the time. People come in and say, I'm waiting for when, 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 when can I have a relationship? But it's like, I don't know. Ask God. Don't ask me. You know, when, when can I? Up to now, God isn't telling me that I need to be with somebody else. You know, he's just saying, well, follow your sponsor's advice for the moment, you know. So I had to give up the desire. And finally, I decided that I had to give up the need, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, all right, it's okay. If I end up like sort of staying, you know, celibate for the rest of my life, then so be it. It wasn't a plan. But, you know, I'm here now 10 years on into sobriety and uh, life is good. Life is really good, you know. 
and I will finish on this. There's a number of speaker tapes out there on this issue. There's um, some good work that's been done in writing inventories on uh, emotional sobriety. And, you know, if I can help you in any way on these things and point you in the direction, please don't hesitate to ask me. Um, I'll leave a link later on and I'll, I'll get Daniel to help me put some material up on online where you can, you can get to it. But, you know, this really is, I, I hear it across the, across the board, you know, emotional sobriety uh, is, 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 is so key to, to any kind of meaningful sobriety in, in, in the long run, you know. Anyway, thanks for letting me share. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Brendan. You know, I, there have been a couple of questions, but I'm, uh, you know, I, I just want to be a little, a little bit selfish because it's, you know, it's really touched the core of my, of my recovery. What you, what, what you've talked about here, and um, and for me, it's not really, and it's not really my self worth that's not being fulfilled. So I'm trying to connect the dots, but you know, just very briefly, my, you know, um, my. my well-being, I've worked so hard on my codependence, but my well-being is so tied in to my wife's well-being. I mean, you know, anyone can replace my wife with, with whatever it is, even with my, you know, with myself. But, but for me, with my, with my, my wife being so down and emotionally sad, it, I find it, and I'm so connected to her, I find it so difficult to attain that level of emotional sobriety. I'm literally going through it today. And it's funny you mentioned smiles because just, you know, um, about an hour and a half ago when I went to say goodnight to her, you know, she's really sad. She's having a very tough time at the moment. Um, and I've gone past that point of where it's about me. I know it's not about me. I'm the good part in her life right now. You know, I'm the guy that's in recovery. I'm not actually causing too much friction. Um, and I said to her, you know, a, you know, a little smile, you know, I made the mistake of, you know, a little smile, you know. Why don't make me smile if I don't want to smile, you know? You know, and she's got that connection to herself that she can say that openly, um, emotionally to me. But it's so difficult for me to attain that next level of emotional sobriety when my heart is so tied into her sadness. And it's not about my self-worth. And it's not about um, me thinking it's about me. It's that I can't fix her pain, and I'm powerless over her pain, and her pain pains me. I just wondered if you had any comment on that. There are a couple of other questions after, but, yeah, if you had any comment on that. i tell you what, do you want to just throw out a couple of the other questions, and then maybe I'll come back in, and they, they might fit together, some of this. Sure. Um, well, uh, the most important question was from Jason, which is, do you not have a, a razor? But I think... We're going to put that aside for now. Um. <laughs> hey, Jason, I'm I'm planning a trip to to to. I've been invited to Iran, so uh, <laughs> that's, that's 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 serious, huh? So I hope to go like at the end of February to to Iran, like to, to so you can have to grow the bit a little bit and get a suntan. Absolutely. Well, you know, like we we are actually related. You know, the the, the Celts came from Persia. You know, which sort of, you know, kind of freaked out a, 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 some pilots from the U.S. one time when I told them that I had to leave a bar very quickly. But right. If you study Jewish history, the Jews also came from Persia at one point. But um, okay. Um, well, we have a question from Cindy. She says, is it possible to have a prevailing sense of sadness while being emotionally sober? Uh, I don't think that emotional sobriety guarantees you, you know, a smile on your face the whole time. 
by any means. Um, and I don't think, I mean, sadness is not, I don't think there's anything wrong with sadness anymore that there's anything right with happiness. Uh, they're, they're, they're emotions that we have. I like the, there was a talk earlier on that I wasn't able to be in and, you know, that sort of, that I think talks on that issue of like the feelings aren't facts. Um, you know, I think that we can be sad. We can have a prevailing sense of sadness, but we can be emotionally sober. Definitely. Absolutely. Because emotional sobriety is about my actions and it's about how I feel about myself. I like the way somebody explained it is, you know, when what I know about myself and what I feel about myself are in congruence, then that's emotional sobriety. So if I know that I'm living by, you know, the principles of the program and I'm living in the right way, well, then if somebody comes up to me and says, you're a complete whatever, and, you know, you're just, you're nothing, you know, this, that, and the other. Well, I'm going to say, you know, that's your opinion. That's great. Like sort of this thing, you know, or, or if, you know, my wife or, or the person with this is like very depressed and, and sort of like sort of saying like, I mean, you shouldn't be happy. Well, you know, that's, then again, that's their, that's their opinion. You know, I'm a sort of this thing with them. If I'm living by right means I had to, I had to tell the mother of my son that, um, that I might have had a child with another woman. This woman told me that I had her daughter and that by that stage she'd be about 13 and I was going to have the DNA test. And I told her and she got furious with me. She got furious with me. I had told it to her years before, but now I told her I was going to go and have the test. She was furious at me the way I told her, whatever, you know. But I was completely at peace with myself because I had prepared myself and I was doing things in what I really believed was the right way. And I wasn't doing it. There was no selfishness involved in what I was doing. You know? I was trying to do the right thing. And, and so she was very, very upset with me, but I was at peace with myself, you know. Um, but I think I can be at peace with myself, but still be sad. You know, my parents are, are aging and, and, and they will pass on. And I'm, I will be very sad, but I don't think that has to take away from my emotional sobriety. Yeah? You know, um, I think when we lose the emotional sobriety, and this is why it's very close to what we're, there's two talks on shame later on in the day today. And I, anybody who's interested in this thing, you know, go and listen to Mark V, go and listen to Eric S. Later on, we specifically got them in, you know. And, you know, it's very linked to this thing of shame as opposed to guilt. Guilt, I feel, when I've done something wrong and I know, well, okay, next time I'll do it better. Shame is when I've done something and it makes me feel I'm a bad person. Now, emotional sobriety is when if I'm living by the principles of the program, I know I'm a good person. And although I don't hold down jobs like other people, I have you know, a terrible deficit of attention. I've got all these other things. I don't have to feel bad about myself because I can't be like others. I can be okay with myself. And what other people's you know, I love that saying that people say, I'd heard it for years. What other people think about me is none of my business. But how do you get to that? How do you get to that? Um, I know there's very little time left and there was, there was other questions, but I wanted to leave you with something. And I'm really sorry that we have more questions and more sort of time or whatever. Or maybe if you, I can take a list of questions. And if people want to contact me, it's brendansa at gmail.com. And I would love to share more of this. But That's some- Brendan, E-S-S-A-Y, not okay. S-A. Brendan, E-S-S-A-Y, at gmail.com. And I just want to leave you with this thing because it, it, it was a gift. This Rabbi Shai, he, he, he was talking about emotional sobriety. And he's saying, you know, the only way to get this self-validation that we're looking for, he said, the only way to get the self-validation is through God consciousness. I thought, well, well we're back again, you know, the chicken and the egg. We're back on step three again. You know, how am I going to hand my will and my life over to God? You know, it's God consciousness, you know. 
I've got visions of this Thomas Merton spending 18 years in a cave or something, you know, like sort of trying to sort of meditate. And I think, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 60. I haven't got the time for that. Like, I mean, God consciousness, I kind of, kind of need it now, you know, like, now. and he said that like sort of, you know, God consciousness is when I can accept myself as I am. I can accept you as you are. And I can accept the world as it is. It doesn't mean that I don't try to change things that I might not want to. There might be things I want to improve that I think I can improve in the world that I can influence. There's definitely things that I can think I can improve in myself. I try not to improve you anymore because every time I do, you, you, you hit back at me and I get into trouble. So what I try to do it that way. But what I found is when I'm doing that, you know, there's just so much more peace. And so I, I immediately thought, God, I can do that kind of God consciousness. All it means is accept the world the way it is. You can try and change it, but if it doesn't change, don't get upset about it. You know, if you can try to change a group, if it doesn't change, then as my sponsor in another program said, let them paint it purple. What does it matter? What's the big deal? You know, don't make a big deal of it. You're entitled to have your say. You're entitled to try to change the world. You're entitled to change the group, and you're entitled to sort of change yourself. But like, you know, if it doesn't happen, well, then just accept it. It's God's will. You know, I had to accept myself. And I've told my sponsor, yes, accept me too, because God made me this way. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Brendan. And I guess I'm going to just pick your brain in private on my question. <laughs>